Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you conversations with and about the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know the names, and you definitely know the songs. We bring you the stories. Keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, or our website by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. While Songcraft is always free, if you believe in our mission of preserving and presenting these important conversations, we invite you to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. There you can help support us with a voluntary monthly pledge that will also give you access to bonus content and other extras as our way of saying thanks for your continued support. You're listening to You Can't Take the Honky Tonk Out of the Girl, a 2004 hit for Brooks and Dunn by Bob DePiro, who has written 15 number one country hits, was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, and will share his insights into what he contributed to the world of country songwriting. I think if I really brought something with me to country music, it was that. DePiro's songwriting style significantly impacted the direction country music would take in the 1990s and beyond. In part three of today's show, we sit down for an in-depth interview with the man who recently received the highly prestigious BMI Icon Award. But first, in part one, we catch up on Paul's big songwriter news before jumping into part two, where we'll talk about songs we hate by artists we love. Part one. Paul Duncan, how are you, my man? I'm doing pretty good, man. I feel like it's been a while. It has been a while since we've uh, been together in the same place. You've been doing a little international travel, yes? Yeah, I uh, actually took a trip to Italy last week. It was kind nice. of a last-minute thing, and I uh, went with a buddy of mine, uh, Drew Lachey, from the band 98 Degrees, Yeah, and he was doing uh, some USO events over there. Right, right. So I went as uh, his valet, attaché, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, helper. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Lachey attaché? Yes, I was the Lachey attaché, exactly. Yeah, accompanist. Yes, um, we actually did get to play a little bit of music. It was kind of cool. We, because uh, it was USO, we spent a lot of time on uh, military bases, and we spent some time playing with the Navy band. We played Superstition in their rehearsal really? with them. Yeah, that's cool. It was awesome. Well, welcome back to the US of A. Thank while you. you were gone, I, I don't know if you've heard this uh, news yet, but while you were gone, a song that you wrote uh, went to number one on the Billboard charts. I had uh, not heard this. <laughs> <laughs> so I think congratulations Thank are you. in order. Uh, you, of course, are a uh, not only a top-notch uh, podcaster, but a songwriter yourself. And uh, so if there are folks who are listening to the show um, who are not aware of the song, just tell us real quick about it. Yeah, uh, it's an artist named Jordan Felice uh, in the contemporary Christian genre. The song is called Witness. Um and that should be all the info you need to find it on uh, <laughs> your YouTube or wherever you happen to go for music, Spotify. Yeah, super exciting. Love the song, uh, love being a part of it, love him as an artist. Um, so yeah, it's a a great a great uh, honor. Felt yeah. amazing. Um, it, but I will not rest until this podcast is sitting at number one. At <laughs> number top, one on the podcast, the podcast charts. charts. Is there well. a podcast chart? I'm we sure should, there is. We should try to get on it. Um, <laughs> very cool, man. Well, uh, I am stoked for you. Huge congrats. That Thank is you. that is awesome. Well, you um, were there for uh, my first co-write. 
that was our uh, song that we wrote around age 16. Yeah, yeah. So, and I was, you know, I always thought that would, would go to number one. Uh, uh, it, it was so insightful and, and deep. I think and, it was number and, two. And, and <laughs> 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 it was a it was a number two, yes. <laughs> well, you know, um, you guys have heard us talk about Patreon before here on the show and uh, probably haven't heard us talk about it too much recently. We, we, we try not to be too annoying about it. Yeah. But, um, you know, we, we do this thing called Patreon and uh, it's an opportunity for those of you who listen to the show, who love the show, to go and support us um, with your, your hard-earned dollars. Yeah, and the tiers actually are pretty low. You, you don't have to contribute a whole lot to be a part of what we're doing. Um, and we kind of have some neat things that we offer uh, in, in terms of the people that are, are donating to us. We've got uh, bonus material from the interviews that you won't have heard anywhere else. We've got um, some great bonus material from this Bob DePiro interview that's coming up today, as yeah. a matter of fact. Bob, actually, I, I asked him, uh, what uh, is the one song you would want to be remembered for out of all the huge hit songs you've written? Uh, he couldn't pick one. He picked two. Hmm. And i got to tell you, both were big surprises. One, really? One was not even a charting song. Uh, and the other one was not a number one hit. He's had a lot of number one hits, but he he chose two songs. If you are a, a Patreon subscriber, then you can check out that bonus material and hear what Bob DePiro wants to be remembered for 200 years from now. And if you're not a Patreon subscriber, then maybe you'll make friends with one who will let you hear their bonus audio feed. Exactly. But we might actually put some safeguards in place to keep that from happening. <laughs> no, we can't. We can't have that happening. But yeah, uh, but that's scalping. Yeah, go to go to Patreon. Check us out. You know, uh, Paul might be a number one hit songwriter, but I am not. So <laughs> I appreciate the help. You know, keeping the lights on and, and keeping this podcast going. So uh, um, we thank you guys for checking that out, and we really do appreciate uh, the support of, of those of you who have uh, have taken that step. So thank you very much. Now, now that you mentioned my my newfound wealth, of course, I'm going to become a Patreon supporter of Songcraft. Now. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate that. A benevolent donor. Part two. Last time we talked about three songs from each of us that were songs that we liked from artists that we are not necessarily fans of. And Scott, you had the great idea this time of flipping that concept around and talking about three artists that we are big fans of. Yeah. But picking songs of theirs that we're not such big fans of. I'm going to cut to the chase and call this segment Songs We Hate by Artists We Love. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And, and I, I would offer a disclaimer um, to this that, you know, f at least for the ones that I'm bringing, these are still well-crafted songs. I mean, I still respect what went into them. I still respect these artists. And, and I'm not saying that these are bad songs or that they were, you know, poorly written or poorly constructed or whatever. I just don't like them. Yeah. I'm not even going to hedge like you are. I'm just really? going to I'm just going to say it. I'm you just, just going to go. They suck. I'm just going to jump in right now. Go for should it. I should I start? Yeah. All right. I want to say number 1, first of all, uh the Eagles are a controversial group. There are people who who hate the Eagles. Um, as it has been pointed out, the Eagles are one of the few bands that people can just uh, hate without having to rationalize uh, that that hatred whatsoever. Right. I like the Eagles. Right. I'm an Eagles fan, and I'm a Don Henley fan. Right. Into the Innocence, some of that stuff, man, great stuff. Amazing. Yeah. So I got nothing bad to say about the Eagles, and I got nothing bad to say about Don Henley. All right. Except for one thing, dirty laundry. <laughs> I hate the song <laughs> dirty laundry and yeah. it's bad enough and then it goes to the kick him when the up, up kick him when the down <laughs> and then there's even like Oof. it even takes you into a deeper circle of hell with like a vocal chorus that then repeats 
that part. Yeah. Um, I hate everything about that song. I hate I hate the uh, the the production. Yeah. Uh, I don't like the lyrics. I don't like anything. So, um, huge Don Henley fan, huge Eagles fan. I will probably uh, say that I like the Eagles, even though uh, you know I recognize that that's not the cool thing to say. But uh, but yeah, Dirty Laundry Man. That's uh, I do not like it. You know, what would make this segment really entertaining is if we had some back and forth, right? And if I could disagree with you. <laughs> but I can't, man. That song is... <laughs> that song is not cool. Um, I thought you were going to say Life in the Fast Lane, and I thought we could spar a little bit on that one. I don't like Life in the Fast like Lane, actually. I, I have to say that, that, to me, when Don Henley is being chill, that's his yeah. best self. When he's trying yeah. to rock out a little bit, which to me, life in the fast lane is, uh, right. I, I I don't love that. So I I will say that life in the fast lane is is probably one of my least favorite Eagles songs. In fact, I'll even say that I like the Eagles' first like three or four albums. I'm not a big fan of like after Joe Walsh came into the band. Yeah. Um, you know, they they get a little too rocking for me. I'm a little more chill than that. But we will diverge there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but dirty laundry, we we can agree. <laughs> that brings us together. <laughs> um. <laughs> All right. Well, my first one, I'm going to go ahead and just go for my own jugular. Um, Elton John is is one of the reasons I went into music. Uh, it was where I really first found the magic and, and you know, began to start writing songs of my own. I, you know, I wanted to write songs like Rocket Man and Tiny Dancer. But, man, I just I, I cannot abide Crocodile Rock. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, I mean, it's not like I got tired of it. <laughs> Like the first time I heard it, I was I was just like, "What is this?" Right, you know, and, and it was a huge hit. Yeah, I, I don't like the kind of like organ, <laughs> you know, and the yeah, all that. But I think like I mean, and this is where I will say like it's the the lyric is really cool in a lot of ways, you know. Um, you know, the years went by and the rock just died. Susie went and left us for some foreign guy. Like, I like the <laughs> kind of like storytelling nature of it. But here's the thing, and I'm going to touch on this a couple times. I like music from the 50s. <laughs> I don't like music about the 50s. And, and I don't like music from later decades that tries to recreate kind of a 50s pastiche. Like, that's right. that's just not... Right, right. Uh, yeah. Which is funny because I actually kind of like when people try to recreate like a 70s vibe. Yeah, I'm, I'm cool with that. But recreating 50s vibe, I hear you. Yeah. I'll take it a step further. I don't like songs about about songs. <laughs> I don't like songs about genres of music for certain. I, I don't oh. like songs about dancing. Uh, <laughs> to me, that that feels like a, a prime example of, of sort of all of that. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's all I'm there. with you. We're not we're not disagreeing on these so far. Wow, this might be why we're friends. <laughs> All right. Um, so the next one, uh, Bruce Springsteen, mm. one of my favorite songwriters of all time. Again, like you talked about, Elton was very influential on you. Bruce Springsteen was very influential, and I first started uh, getting into writing songs of my own. Um, Bruce Springsteen and Steve Earle were kind of the twin pillars of okay. of songwriters that I admired yeah. and and tried to kind of pattern myself after. Um, which, when you're starting out, you should definitely try to pattern yourself after uh, unattainable standards <laughs> of songwriting like that. Um, but yeah, I love uh, Bruce Springsteen. I, I, he's one of my favorite artists of all time. I, I hate Glory Days. <laughs> 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 and it kind of falls in a similar category of nostalgia as Crocodile Rock. Yeah. Uh, I also don't like songs that mention baseball. Um, 
<laughs> Don't even get me started on center field by John Furrity. Oh, man, I also love John Furrity, but I just expanded my list. Right. Uh, but, yeah, there's something about it. I, I feel like John Mellencamp's Cherry Bomb was his glory days. Yeah, totally. I, I don't I don't like that either. But, totally. uh, yeah, love well, Bruce, but I, I uh, glory days, no. I, man, I think I'm going to be kind of with you on that one. Although, I mean, there are other Springsteen songs that I think uh, are are less worthy of Bruce. Right. Than even Glory Days. I, like, will not, I, think, I will not hear such criticism. Tunnel of Love is not, not one of my favorites. Oh, man, I uh, love Tunnel of Love. Um, but yeah. Great song. So, um, but that's not one of mine. So <laughs> I want to continue on, on my own list here. And uh, so anyone that takes a look at my keychain will see that I have a U2.com membership card sure on do. my keychain. It's do. a giant piece that. of metal. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge U2 fan. I'll, I'll go see them anytime they come to L.A. multiple times, you know, Stand in line to buy the new record, all that. But you two stands has... in line to buy a record. <laughs> <laughs> I do. <laughs> anyway, who buys records? You um, two has been so many bands in the course of their career, right? That I feel like even if you're a fan, if there's not a U two song that you don't like, you're kind of lying, because <laughs> it's hard to, to for you to, to tell me that you love Joshua Tree. And you love Zeropa with equal fervor because right, right. those are such different records and sure. kind of such different bands. So with that in mind, man, I can't do Lemon. <laughs> and I don't know if all y'all remember Lemon, but it's like all bleeps and boops and it's like, Lemon! It, and I'm like, man, I love this band. And, right. and I, I want to go on record also saying that I'm glad they did it because I feel like they opened the door for themselves to be experimental in that stage. Right, and it right. set the stage for, you know, the next records, not just being a retread of Joshua tree, right. Etc. Um, but that song <laughs> is, it's just sort of offensive to my ears. Right. Um, and that's kind of all I have to say about it. Like, I, I hear you. Uh, I, I'm not a fan of that song either. I, I do like you too. I actually, uh, I can never decide if I like desire. I think huh. I like Desire, but not for that band. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. It's that Bo Diddley thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so my last one. I'll save the most controversial for last. Oh, good. The Beatles. Okay. Um, obviously, I'm a huge Beatles fan. Have all the Beatles albums. Know all the Beatles songs. Was just in London last year. Did the Beatles walking tour of London. I mean, everybody loves the Beatles, right? But right. I'm a, I'm a fan of the right. Beatles. I don't really like Sgt. Pepper, the song. Uh, yeah. I don't. Uh, it's just kind of obnoxious. Um, <laughs> I I don't. I just don't like it. I don't. I, and I'm not a, that huge a fan of the Sgt. Pepper album. Uh, to me, Rubber Soul, Revolver, Abbey Road, those yeah. three are my favorites. Um, and I love, you know, White Album is, is great. There's a, most of the Beatles stuff I love. Sergeant Pepper, I revere. Yes. For the recording technology and what yeah. they did in the studio that was like just completely unheard of at that time. But in terms of what I want to listen to, I don't want to hear that song. Well, this is where I think that like, that fans need to maintain objectivity. Like it's right. okay to say, I'm a huge fan of this band. I recognize the importance of this album slash song. Right. But I personally don't get it. Yeah. Or I don't like it, or it's yeah, not my yeah. favorite thing of theirs. So I mean, that's that's not the kind of thing that I that I personally would take you to task for, except right. to say that I do like that song, 
I I like because that's I think that's McCartney's guitar like at the beginning of it that yeah. and he yeah, just yeah. that that blistering kind of you know just like scorched earth sound that right. he would get out of that Les Paul. Yeah. I think it was Les Paul he was playing on that. Yeah, maybe. A, any of you uh, Beatles Beatle aficionados out, out there, there want to? Yeah, you know. I um uh you know I like I guess maybe we're finding a pattern here because I like here there and everywhere Paul McCartney more than like I'm rocking out Paul McCartney kind of back to my Don Henley thing. I think there's some people to me that are not really rockers and uh the you know or maybe you're just like a sleepy kind of old man i am an old guy like i feel very comfortable in like a dentist office lobby uh <laughs> you know i i don't want I, i'm i fear loud noises uh, <laughs> <laughs> um all right so my, my last one is it's gonna be a bit full circle for me um I love Bob Seger. I, I love him. I feel like he's one of the greatest voices ever to, um, you know, to, to hit the rock airwaves. Yeah. And I love these songs, Main Street and Night Moves. I love this, you know, this kind of uh, retrospective, nostalgic approach to life. You know, he makes yeah. me nostalgic for things I never experienced. <laughs> but there's one song. Actually, there's a couple. It, it, there's a genre of Bob Seger that I don't like. Mm. But it, it really crystallizes in the song Old Time Rock and Roll. I'm a thousand percent with you. I just, and it's, I say that it comes full circle because it's that same thing about the 50s. Yeah. A song about the 50s. Right. And it's about rock and roll. Yeah. You know, which is going to bug you. <laughs> I, I almost said Katmandu because I have a problem with stutter rock. <laughs> and I don't, I don't, you can't find me. You ain't a, seen nothing yet. Yeah, I I mentioned this to somebody the other day. I said, I don't like any stutter rock songs. They said, what about my generation? I'm like, oh, okay, that's uh, maybe. It's on the fence. It's on the fence. (laughs) But man, freaking cat man can't do it. But old time rock and roll is like, uh, yeah. (laughs) as soon as I hear it, I, I can't change the channel fast enough. And you know, I think that Bob Seger is a is a wildly underrated uh, songwriter, yep. and um, he actually did not write that song. Uh, George well, then Jackson I feel wrote that better. Song. Yeah, and I feel so better. So it's now. more a question of Bob Seger's uh, decision of what to cover than. But Bob did write Betty Lou's getting out tonight, right? <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I I assume he did. I assume he did. Yeah, but, uh... <laughs> that 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 whole segment of of if, if they kind of made a like a piano rockers right, uh, right. album of, of compilation of Bob stuff, I wouldn't buy it. Here's something that might blow your mind a little bit. Uh, I just realized this recently. The distance time wise between when Bob Seger recorded old time rock and roll and the beginning of the rock and roll era that he was memorializing in that song was a shorter time period in the distance between when Bob Seger recorded old time rock and roll and where we sit today. Wow. Yeah. It's almost like if I put out an, a song celebrating Coldplay's yellow. Right. <laughs> right. And talking about how much I like kind of the sad British invasion of yeah. the early two thousands. Yeah. Yeah. It's, we've reached it. We've reached a period where, where enough time <sighs> has passed that we can be nostalgic about nostalgia. Okay. That's, that's a little too urban outfitters for me right now. I can't even, <laughs> I can't put my head into that place. Um, so well, speaking of nostalgia, yeah. Um, when I was a kid, my father—we've mentioned this before. My dad's name is Woody Bomar. He's a music publisher in Nashville. He worked yep. for a company called Combine Music, um, and he left that company and started a company called Little Big Town Music mm. with uh, with partners. And um, 
one of the superstar songwriters, kind of the main guy when I was a kid in Nashville was Bob DePiro. Yep. And uh, so my dad was Bob DePiro's uh, song plugger, partner in crime, you know, right there in, at Combine and, and Little Big Town. And so I sort of grew up with this guy. Um, and uh, he gave me a very generous cash gift for a wedding present, by really? the way, which, uh, yeah, I was surprised because I didn't wow. know him personally that well. But I grew up sort of uh, having, you know, Bob DePiro as this this sort of larger than life character that, that my dad worked with. Wow. And, um, you know, I was in Nashville several weeks ago and went over and, and hung out with Bob. It was actually the most time I'd ever spent with him. And uh, what a great guy. Wow. Well, and, and, you know, since you mentioned your dad, shout out to Woody Bomar for being one of the great publishers and one of the great men in all of Nashville in the music business. Uh, can't find anybody to say a negative word about your dad. And, and I've tried. I'm, I'm always, you know, no. Yeah, I remember when you went on that, uh, you launched like an investigation for a year or so. It was and, a personal and, slander tour. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and, and uh, but your conversation with Bob, uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to be there for. But we're, we're actually getting pretty good at this solo flight thing. We are, we are. Um, and I'm, I'm a little jealous. Yeah. Jealous that I wasn't there. Yeah. But uh, looking forward to hearing it. Well, you can go cry yourself to sleep on your uh, billboard number one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually am getting a pillow made. Yeah, I think yeah. you should. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Let's hear it. Yep. Part three. Bob DePiro has written 15 number one hits, including Southern Voice for Tim McGraw, If You Ever Stop Loving Me for Montgomery Gentry, Blue Clear Sky for George Strait, Daddy's Money for Ricochet, The Church on Cumberland Road for Shenandoah, Money in the Bank for John Anderson, Little Rock for Reba McIntyre, and American Made for the Oak Ridge Boys. Neil McCoy's recording of his song Wink stayed at number one for four weeks in 1994 and was named BMI's most performed country song of the year. Other highlights from DePiro's catalog include Faith Hill's Take Me As I Am, Reba McIntyre's Till You Love Me, George Strait's Cowboys Like Us, and Vince Gill's Worlds Apart, which was named Song of the Year at the Country Radio Music Awards in 1997. Other artists who've recorded Bob's songs include Garth Brooks, Toby Keith, Travis Tritt, Rhett Akins, Billy Ray Cyrus, Patty Loveless, The Mavericks, Marty Stewart, Darius Rucker, Etta James, Martina McBride, Neil Diamond, Trace Atkins, Steve Warner, Lone Star, Tracy Bird, Sonny Sweeney, Easton Corbin, Toby Keith, and Little Feet with Bob Seger. DePiro received Oscar and Golden Globe nominations for his song Coming Home, which Gwyneth Paltrow performed for the film Country Strong. He was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2007, was named Songwriter of the Year at the Nashville Music Awards in 1998, and received the prestigious BMI Icon Award in 2017. Bob, welcome to Songcraft. Scott, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Great to be here in your studio on Music Row. Studio on Music Row. The place where the magic happens. Ah, see? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, you were born in Youngstown, Ohio, and grew up, you know, playing in in bands in in high school, like a lot of kids do, playing guitar. Um, but can you remember the first time you actually tried to write a song of your own? The very very first song I wrote was for the Boy Scouts. Huh, really? <laughs> in a talent show for my troop, Troop Nine, the yeah. Boy Scouts, in yeah. summer camp. And uh, <laughs> of course, it was a big hit at the summer camp. It went to number one that weekend. <laughs> <laughs> number but, one in Boy Scouts. Yeah, it was number camp. one for at least a week. It stayed at number one for a week at Troop Nine. But the first song I wrote was yeah, the first song I can remember writing. I wrote around high school. Hmm. What was it called? Do you remember? Yes, I do. It was called Vizcaya. 
Vizcaya. Wow. Yeah. V i z c a y a. Wow. It was written. It was written about this place that's in Miami Beach. That right. was a. It was basically a palace that at the turn of the century, some huge industrialist at the time before taxes built this just palatial place yeah. right on the bay down there and uh it was just ridiculously beautiful the most amazing thing i'd seen at the time you yeah know? And, uh, yeah it just inspired me to write this song and it and it had chords in it that I have not used since. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's quite a lofty uh, yes, topic for a teenage so, boy. Yes, and so are the so is the music. You know, I'd learned all these chords, and by God, I was going to use every one of them in this song. <laughs> so that's that's the song I can remember. That's funny. Well, I understand you were in a group called Joy that uh, Joy. recorded an album for Paula Records in Shreveport, Louisiana <laughs> in the early 70s. Oh, what kind of music w were you doing at that time? It was like all over the map. If you can imagine a band that sounded like a cross between Yes and Buffalo Springfield. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that leaves it pretty much That's, wide open. That, that touches all bases in yes, rock and roll so in the 70s. We, we did not make the definitive album, you know, but we were trying. Well, by around 1978, you land in, in Nashville, and as a as a rock guy who's playing all these rock you know clubs in Ohio, uh, what drew you to Nashville as opposed to L.A. or New York? I'd gone to New York with our lead singer at the time, trying to better our record deal, you know. And, yeah. Uh, at the time, New York was really like if you've ever seen the. Martin Scorsese movie Taxi Driver. Yeah, it was of that a vintage. You know, hmm. it was really grimy and kind of yeah. suspect. I remember going there and going, "Man, I could never live here. I like to come here because it really feels dangerous, and yeah. I like to feel <laughs> like that." You know, yeah. but I just don't. I couldn't see myself living in that city. You know, and right. Uh, I always said my I knew my car wouldn't make it to L.A. from Youngstown. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, is that I had some friends who had moved to Nashville who were also songwriter, hopeful artists. I'd come down to visit them, and uh, I really had, at that point, I had, like, truly zero background in, in anything that had to do with country. But I just liked the, the town. Yeah. Know, I, there was something about it. Something somewhat familiar to yeah. me and, and something I felt comfortable in. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Uh, at the time I was making, I was really getting into songwriting back in Ohio, just writing songs. And so over the period of about three years, I was making trips to Nashville. Right, See right. my buddies and literally just started Literally walking up and down the street and knocking on doors. I, wow. I knew nobody. My friends knew a couple people, uh, but I literally just started uh, walking up and down the streets until wow. I read some articles. I read Billboard, and I read about this place called Combine Music, and they had people that I knew that yeah. wrote there, like Chris Christofferson. To this day, I'm still a huge Christofferson fan. You know, yeah. going, well, shit, Chris writes there. <laughs> gotta be cool <laughs> i'm gonna <laughs> right. try that place right know? right yeah so i brought my tapes in there and uh, a guy by the name of al cooley listened to him and he got excited about him and one thing led to another and they gave me a writer's deal there at 75 dollars a week nice how did you sort of 
educate yourself on how country songwriting works. When I first moved to town, I made my living giving guitar lessons hmm. because for the first two years, shit, for the first four years, even when I had a, a writer's deal, I was teaching guitar at a really small music store north of Nashville. You know, and mostly I was teaching kids. Right. I would finish writing in that, in downtown music row and then yeah. i'd get on this bus which would take me at least an hour to get up to rivergate which is all the way out there well wow. yeah now it would take three days right. to get up there <laughs> with the way traffic is and i was teaching stuff like back in black and it the yeah. songs of the day sure. red barchetta and and what the kids wanted to learn i was there to teach them because i needed their six dollars every half hour <laughs> right. so whatever they wanted to learn i'd i'd right. teach them you know whatever it was and but I had this one student, his name was James. I, I, I'll never forget this, man. He was like, at the time, he was like in his 60s, probably as old as I am now. And he was retired. But he came in, he said, I just want to learn bass. I want to learn country bass. I don't want to learn to read music. I don't want to learn anything else. And these are the songs I want to learn. And he handed me this cassette. And he said, huh. you just show me where to put, mash my fingers down and, <laughs> and I'll learn. And... Uh, he gave me this cassette and it had these songs like, you know, classics like Hank Williams songs and, and you know, Window Up Above, Paycheck, early Paycheck songs, yeah. you know, Johnny Cash. Yeah. And uh, and so I learned these songs to teach to him, you know, right. and I started listening to these songs and I'm going, wow, these are these are very very deceptively simple <laughs> but the story and, and the the language and the the melodies are just like they're just like soul i called it at the time i called country music white soul music it kind of hit me where the soul music at the, of the time the r&b stuff right. hit me yeah in the same place you know yeah yeah and so it really uh it really struck a chord with me, you know? And so for the next year, year or so, James would show up every Monday night and uh, I'd teach him. He was a great student. Whatever I taught him, he'd know it. And about, <laughs> and about eight months in, he showed up and he had one of these cowboy hats. I guess these days you would call it a Chris Stapleton cowboy hat. Right, right. Back then, it was a Johnny Lee kind of hat right. with the with a feather the in the feather, front, yeah. you know. And <laughs> and he'd he'd bought a bass amp, and he he sold his car and got a like I think an Impala or something, right. something really big, right? So he could put his amp in the back of the trunk, yeah, and play at the VFW because <laughs> well, he got himself into this country <laughs> band, right? And it was like he was. Uh, I don't know. He was Elvis. Right. In his mind, he'd done it. And right. he was a bass player. And yeah. he was so into it. And I was learning all these songs. Right, right. He wanted to learn. And yeah. I was just loving it. Falling oh. in love with oh. the language, you know. And mostly it was, for me, learning a language. You know, sure. Learning how the people who are listening to this music actually speak. Yeah. Well, the first time that we see the name Bob DePiro appearing on the country charts is in 1980 when Reba McIntyre had a top 20 hit with I Can See Forever in Your Eyes. I can see forever in your eyes. 
started writing when a guitar student didn't show up at my guitar lesson, huh. you know. And yeah. It's probably the last time I used any of these chords, you right. know, because right. it was like a, it was, which is very revolutionary, three minor <laughs> in a country song, you know, right. and then a four, da, 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 and then a four over five, which, you know, the country police should have been beating my door down, you know. But it was, and then, and it just had cool things, and then it went to, da, 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 yeah. A four minor and but it worked. Yeah. You know, it seemed to work and the yeah, melody yeah. worked and the lyrics worked. There it was. Well, in nineteen eighty three you scored your first number one song with the Oak Ridge Boys recording of American Made, which was not only a huge hit, but also a hugely successful Miller Beer commercial. Honestly, I can't remember exactly where that idea came from. I've got this shtick I do when I perform <laughs> it. But I remember the chorus just kind of one of those miraculous moments of the chorus just kind of came out, fell out of my head. And I, uh, the co-writer on that song, uh, Pat McManus, just happened to be walking by the door in the little writer's room I was in. Yeah. I said, hey, man, where are you going? He goes, well, I got, 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 some, got some place I got to go. And I said, oh, yeah, well, hey, what do you think of this? And I played on that chord, and right. he goes, uh, I think I'm going to hang out for a while, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and, you know, we proceeded to bang out verses, and yeah. we really labored over those verses. You right, know? There, right. Were, there were some really terrible first drafts of, of that song. You right, know, right. believe it. But we, you know, we just... Banged it out. Yeah. Like they say, writing is rewriting. At that point in time, that is so true. I mean, like I said, the the chorus just kind of was one of those moments Keith Richards talks about. You know, you're just kind of like an antenna. Yeah, yeah. And it just comes down. Yeah, you know? and yeah. At that, in that instance, that was true of the chorus. Uh, not so much of the verses. <laughs> but once I think once we got the idea of how we were going to write the verses... Once we locked into that, it was pretty straight ahead. You could probably give up the guitar lessons at that point. Not right away. Really? Really? <laughs> I was still making $75 a week, you know, in the, in the music business. Right. I was still wanting to keep the lights on and yeah. buy groceries and that kind of thing. So, so you had a number one hit, a National Miller Beer commercial, and you're still schlepping to Rivergate Mall on the bus. <laughs> well, <laughs> when the Miller Beer commercial came along, I decided I could give up guitar teaching. <laughs> I remember riding up on the bus to Rivergate to teach with my first gold album on the bus. Yeah. That I'd just gone to my first number one gold record party. And it gave me my first gold album. And I was sitting in the back of a Metro bus with this gold album sitting back there. <laughs> and I see these people like turn around looking at this thing going, where do you steal that from? You know, that's how it was. I remember Combine as a kid. And maybe it's partially just the perspective of being a kid and encountering characters like I had never seen before in my young sheltered <laughs> life. But it's like everyone who was at Combine was like this larger-than-life personality, you know? As a kid, it blew my mind that there's, like, a guy whose name is Whisper, and, <laughs> you know, like, 
Johnny McRae with, uh, I think he had a picture of like a half naked 400 pound woman on the wall in his office. And everybody called him Pooch. I mean, everything everything about it as a kid was just like, who are these? Who are these, who are people? these people? You know, it was like this just very strange environment. Well, I don't think you were. Uh, I don't think even as a kid you were you were blowing it out of proportion. <laughs> it was like that to me. I was right. like, who are these people? And I love them. <laughs> I don't know who they are, but I really like them. Right. You know, we mentioned Pat McManus a moment ago, who was your co-writer on American Made, and you guys continued to have success together in the 1980s with Charlie McLean's top five hit, Sentimental Old You, and uh, Reba McIntyre's number one hit, Little Rock. Yep. Um, and, you know, Pat's another one of those guys that I remember from my childhood, because he and my dad wrote a couple successful yes, hits did. together as well. Um, but, you know... That's not a guy who whose name we really see. He kind of slipped out of sight a little bit after the the mid '80s, um, and a lot of guys do. I mean, there's people yeah. who kind of have their moment. Um, so, what's the difference between a guy who has a few hits in a certain era and someone like yourself who manages to sustain over decades? Well, of course, I, I can't speak for for anyone else. Yeah. You know, uh, I think it's a combination of things. I think it's a combinations of the choices we make living our lives, some which have to do with musical and business decisions and some that have to do with personal decisions, personal weaknesses, personal strengths, personal things that you struggle with. But I can speak for me. Number one, I love it. My my work is my hobby, and my hobby is my work. And I still have that sense of excitement and, gee, what's going to happen today? Maybe I'll write the shittiest song of my <laughs> career, or I can write the greatest song of my career, or something in between. Right, something's right. going to happen today. Kind of like going to Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to win or lose, but something's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to be boring. It's not going to be boring, you know? But I think... The nuts and bolts of it is is that I've always looked upon this career as like being a student. I'm always trying to learn, or I'm always trying to allow my mind to be open enough to accept new things right. and not become rigid. Yeah. And wow, back in the 90s, that's when the music was good. Looking forward rather than back kind of thing. Yeah, or, or more than anything, being in the moment. I've really spent a good portion of my adult life working on being in the moment. Um, okay, that happened two years ago. Okay, that was two years ago. Yeah. Or I had these hits 10 years ago. Okay, well, that was 10 years ago. Right. You know, we're in the moment now. It's going to happen right. today. Right. So I think maybe that's the deal. And being fortunate, being lucky, but luck does not create a long-term career right at least that's what i've seen luck can get you places that some people might work four times harder than you and yeah. the, you fall in a luck bucket and you're there yeah but luck does not sustain a career right right um well speaking of characters around combine the first time i ever saw a man with long hair was John Scott Sherrill. <laughs> and I was, I was I was probably maybe five-ish years old or something, and my mom was explaining to me, well, sometimes men do have long hair. You know, this <laughs> oh, really? Huh, I didn't I'm know surprised that. your parents let you into combine. <laughs> right. But, um, 
But I bring up John Scott because uh, in 1986, you hit number one uh, yet again with Restless Hearts, That Rock Won't Roll, and that's a song that, that you and John Scott uh, wrote together. And you guys have, have done a lot of work together over the years. That rock won't roll. You know, I met I met John Scott at Combine, and uh, it was just kind of a kindred spirit thing. You know, John Scott was truly, and people say, "Oh, I was a hippie." Well, no, you weren't. You just had long <laughs> hair and you wore a peace sign, but you weren't a hippie. John Scott Sherrill was a hippie in a commune. He went <laughs> to San Francisco in a microbus. He went to Woodstock right. he was a hippie <laughs> real deal he was a real deal but he was a great songwriter at yeah. the time I just thought wow this guy is really really good and we had we had things in common you know we both liked Jackson Brown you yeah know? we both liked um, certain kinds of music and artists that weren't necessarily country but artists that I could say yeah yeah I like him too or yeah yeah that's cool and we just kind of uh, clicked, and we not only became collaborators, we became very, very close friends. Yeah. You, know, uh, you I, I've had hits with other people that I can call friends and collaborators, but we were truly, if you're in jail at 4 o'clock in the morning and you call me, I'm going to do my best to try and get you out of jail right, at that right, moment right. in time. We were those kind of friends. Yeah. Well, by the late 1980s, you left uh, Combine Music, and that was when Little Big Town Music was formed with uh, you and my dad and, and, and Kerry O'Neill. That's correct. Um, and, you know, that was uh, that was sort of this this new era that was a time when Nashville was really just on the verge of it exploding with the whole, you know, Garth Brooks thing and, and uh, sort of the halcyon days, I guess, of, of the 90s. But... Um, you quickly hit number one with a couple of songs uh, that you wrote with John Scott and, and also uh, Dennis Robbins Correct. as well. Uh, the first one being Highway 101's Do You Love Me, Just Say Yes, and the second one being Shenandoah's Church on Cumberland Road. Oh. obviously some real chemistry among you guys because you ended up forming a band together called Billy Hill scoring a top 30 single with too much month at the end of the money um, another one that the three of you guys wrote together um, what was special about that time and, and that little trio of, of guys that, that worked so well I think it was kind of that kindred spirit kind of thing you know John Scott and I had been by that point we'd been writing we started having uh hits together number ones together and dennis robbins was i mean he's north carolina you know he was just a southern country boy but he was a rocker he played with uh this group called the rockets and they yeah. toured with bob seeger and mc5 wow. and 
Wow. They were tr- real live, died in the wool rock and roll band. Yeah, you know? yeah. And so he had that background, and and we had that in common. And uh, when we started writing together, it kind of became obvious to us that we had this thing. Yeah. That ended up turning into this guy we called Billy Hill. Yeah. You know, and we said, now would would Billy say that? Nah, he wouldn't say that, so it wouldn't be a Billy Hill song. Right. Would Billy say this? Oh, yeah, Billy would say this. <laughs> I am just a rebel. You know? Right, and, right. And so it kind of grew from that. I just spoke to to Mark Sanders, and, and he talked about how writing Mirror, Mirror with you and, and John Gerard was a real turning point in his songwriting career. That, of course, song was a top five hit for Diamond Rio, but he said, Bob DePiro taught me that you can write a song and have fun at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, he sort of talked about the importance. I shouldn't have done it because he had way too many hits (laughs) as far as I'm concerned. I should have been an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) He talked about how people have sort of different roles in, in the writing room and how different combinations of people bring out, you know, different things and how why certain partnerships work and certain ones just don't even if you kind of connect with the person on a personal level but do you have any thoughts about what you see as your role what what part do you play in the writing room i think i do whatever needs to be done at that moment Hmm. if someone needs to be the cheerleader i'm the cheerleader that's great yeah that's great yeah yeah if someone needs the quarterback then I'm the quarterback. Hey, I got this idea called uh, Mirror, Mirror, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I think mostly, now that you ask me, uh, I think I I act as an equalizer. Hmm. That I try to put us all on an equal plane, whether you've had 10 more hits than I have or whether you've had no hits. Yeah. And you're a new artist or a young, untried writer. I try to put us put everybody on an equal playing field so that we can all play together get past uh, ego and and get it down to what Just it's about get get down to let's let's we're all here for a reason and it's yeah. let's try and write the best song that's floating around the room today well you and 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 mark and john had some other big hits together uh, john anderson took money in the bank to number one in 1993 neil mccoy hit the top five with their play in our song in 1995, and then George Strait topped the charts with Blue Clear Sky in 1996. Here's as much of the truth as I can remember. The night before we wrote that song, I'd gone to see the movie Forrest Gump. Well, somewhere in the movie, Forrest was talking about his girlfriend, Jenny, you know, the little broken-winged hippie, you know. Right. And uh, she would leave in the movie, and she'd go to San Francisco, and she'd come back to home, and then she'd leave and come back. And at one point in the movie, he goes, and Jenny was gone, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, clear sky, she was back. You know, and going, blue, clear sky, hmm, that's backwards. <laughs> right. That's, that's kind of cool, you yeah, know. And I kind of yeah. kind of sort of filed it away in my head, and, and the next day, I had this writing session with John Gerard and Mark Sanders. We all showed up with basically nothing. Right. You know, it's, as a songwriter, sometimes it's a good idea to at least show up at least awake <laughs> or with a 
or with a song, to, or at least a bit of a something, scrap. or yeah. at least wanting to write that day. You know? <laughs> right. So after a bunch of just staring at each other, I just said, hey, man, I got this idea called Blue Clear Sky. And they were both like, Blue Clear Sky, that's backwards. I go, yeah, I know, <laughs> it's backwards, but that's what's cool about it. You know, you never know, you never think you're going to fall in love again. You're never going to find the person you want to find and out of the blue. There she is, out of yeah. Blue Clear Sky. So we wrote Blue Clear Sky and, and we did a demo. And of course we gave it to our our staffs, our song pluggers, our general right. managers, uh, the people who were whose job it was to to get our songs to the right people. And so my phone rings and it's this guy Tony Brown, who at the time was producing George Strait. And he called me, and I had no idea how he got my number. And he said, hey, man, we're in the studio right now. We're getting ready to record your song. And uh, don't you think this song would be called Clear Blue Sky? You know, Blue Clear Sky, it's backwards, you know. <laughs> right. I'm shocked that he even found my phone number. And, I, right. and he said, don't you think it ought to be called Clear Blue Sky? And so I told him about it. Well, uh, I went to see Forrest Gump, and left <laughs> right. a box of chocolates. And the fact that Forrest Gump said Blue Clear Sky, and I thought it was cool. <laughs> and uh, so he goes okay hold on and he and he, i hear him passing the phone and this voice comes on the phone you can't forget this kind of shit and you can't make it up because it's true and the voice did not say hello bob this is george Strait," or hey right. man it's george he, he said hey where are you from <laughs> what <laughs> where are you from <laughs> where am i from i'm from ohio and he goes look i'm from texas and and, and in Texas, we don't say blue, clear sky. Right. We say clear, blue sky. Don't you think this song <laughs> called clear, blue sky? <laughs> and I was so shocked. I told him about going to see Forrest Gump and right. life's like a box of chocolates. In fact, that Forrest Gump said blue, clear sky. Right. And I thought it was really cool. Turn yeah. of phrase. I'd never heard it before. And he yeah. goes, hmm. And after a long silence, I go, well, what do you think you're going to do, George? And he goes, well, let me ask you something. <laughs> We're having a conversation <laughs> on the phone, you right. know? And he goes, uh, you think there's many gumpsters out there? <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is a, a key executive <laughs> music decision right now. Big money is riding on this answer. <laughs> you, know? right. you think there's many gumpsters out there? <laughs> And I remember saying, yeah, man, I think there's a lot of gumsters out there. <laughs> Movie theater was packed with people. And when I left, there was a line down a block, people getting ready to go in there and get gumster eyes. <laughs> you know, I said, yeah, I think there's a bunch of them. He goes, okay, well, I guess we'll be gumsters then. <laughs> Adios, and he hung the phone up, man. And he recorded the song, and the song was multi-week number one and right. he named his album blue clear sky and right. it became the cma album of the year and p.s when i finally did meet him and talk to him he he told me that they did in fact try to record it as clear blue sky oh okay out of the clear blue sky right but it, he said it just didn't pop wasn't the same yeah it wasn't the yeah. same so there you have it well, of course, there were plenty of other co-writers in the 1990s. You and and Buddy Cannon and John Scott hit the top ten with Sammy Kershaw's mm -hmm. "Anywhere But Here," and wow. then you and Tom Shapiro had a couple nice hits in that era when you reached the top five with Kathy Matea's "Walking Away a Winner," and then number one with Neil McCoy's "Wink." Bam, bam, I'm 
this thing. I got this idea called Wink because right. I showed it to a bunch of people. <laughs> Nobody's saying anything. <laughs> All right. And he goes, and here's the first couple lines. You know, I woke up this morning, my head felt dense. Flash a little while to try to make it make sense. And I'm going, well, that's sweetly ignorant. I like that. <laughs> I, right. I dig that. That Billy Hill would say that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of a son of Billy Hill song in right. my brain. Right, right. And it kind of rocked, you know, and it was fun. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and I remember we demoed it, felt really good, you know, walked like a duck, quacked like a duck, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> right. Sounded like it could be a hit, you yeah. know. And, yeah. And I remember there was Neil McCoy recorded at the time he wasn't a quote-unquote a-list star and there were a lot of people who did not want him to record that song and Mm. did everything in their power not to let him have that song so that they could maybe have a even bigger artist record it but in my brain my old publisher always said there's a big difference between if come and income <laughs> and to me, well, we got this song, and, and he wants it. I could. That's almost in the income column, you know. I, right. I want to do that. Yeah, you know? yeah. So eventually, it was allowed for for Neil to record that song, and, and it became just huge. It still yeah. uh, gets its share of airplay twenty years later. You know? Yeah. Well, you were married to Pam Tillis for the better part of the 1990s and collaborated with her on songs like Blue Roses and Cleopatra, Queen of Denial. And, you know, that that meant that you sort of got to suddenly have a true legend of Nashville songwriting become your father-in-law there for a while. And, of course, he passed away recently. But talk about uh, Mel Tillis and how getting to know him kind of helped you think about your own place in the grand tradition of professional Nashville songwriters, which is something that he kind of was one of the guys that helped pioneer this, this whole thing. He was always very respectful of me and to me, even when I, I had had some success at that point, but I, I hadn't, I hadn't yet had that big blow up stuff when Pam and I first started uh, dating and then got married. And I, I think by him showing me respect the way he did and the fact of who he was, it really, it allowed me to have a deeper feeling of confidence in myself as, yeah, I'm not a pretender. I'm, I am who these people think I am. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, I think I am maybe that good. Right. Because right. I always was very uh, suspect of uh, myself right you know, right self doubt but he really uh he really helped me uh uh feel like a true member yeah. of the community yeah. he really did well, in 1994, Faith Hill had a huge hit with your song, Take Me As I Am, uh, followed soon after with Reba McIntyre's uh, Till You Love Me. The sunlight, the moonlight are beyond my control And there are stars in known as the the 
fun and rowdy, up-tempo song guy. But that particular Reba hit was was much more of a traditional kind of part waltz, part ballad, um, beautiful melody. Um, talk about that song a little bit. Well, it was written with Gary Burr, who who is one of the best writers I've ever sat in a room with yeah. and written a song with. And uh, I remember us talking about what we were going to write that day, hmm. you know, and uh, and I was saying, man, you know that that the Eagle song, you know, take it to the limit, take it, you know, where you have these da 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 da. Right, right. I want to write a song that has that kind of uh, push and pull, you know, huh. and uh, and that's where the sunlight, the moonlight. Beyond my control, yeah, you know those yeah. kind of push and pulls, and yeah, yeah, uh, it doesn't sound like take it to the limit, but the idea yeah, kind of yeah. came from that. Yeah, when you connect those dots, it you makes sense. You can connect those dots. Yeah. It's not the same melody, but there's there are mechanics of it in sure. there that that you can see, you know, and you use as kind of a blueprint for the song you're writing. And right. It was pretty. Uh, painless to write i remember what you know once again once you get a strand of the dna of that yeah. song you can grow it out whether it's in the middle of the song or the beginning of the song you right can kind of go from there yeah you know? well the hits kept on coming with ty england's top five should have asked her faster ricochet's number one hit daddy's money and vince gill's top five single worlds apart which was another beautiful ballad you were my biggest companion now we lie silent in the dark Why do you and me have to be Worlds apart At the time when we were writing Worlds Apart We were both going through uh, Very difficult divorces mm. And the song was about loneliness and and uh and being disenfranchised and being apart but also i was really aware of the fact that yeah i write these fun up-tempo songs but i can also i can do just about whatever needs done and i yeah. wanted to make sure that my catalog contained examples of other types of songs like sure. Till You Love Me, and especially Worlds Apart, which is a per personal favorite of mine. Yeah. Right? It, it really it was a, a very intimate look into my life. So, yeah, I wanted to let people know that I, I'm i not a one-trick pony. I, I, <laughs> I, I love parties. Yeah. You know, I, li I would personally rather be happy than miserable. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? And there's so much misery in this world. Yeah. That if I can bring people three minutes of relief or fun, then I think I'm doing a great job. Yeah, right, <laughs> right, right. you need that shit right. desperately, especially right. now. As we move into the 2000s, we see hits like Martina McBride's Top Ten, There You Are, and the, the top five singles, Cowboys Like Us by George Strait, and You Can't Take the Honky Tonk Out of the Girl, which is one of the few Brooks and Dunn songs where Kicks Brooks sings lead. Yeah, she lives in What ways 
was the Nashville of the early 2000s a different place than the Nashville that you arrived in back in 1978? Well, that's an interesting question for me, uh, career-wise as well as personally, because, uh, you know, we had just gone through this massive explosion of country music in the 90s where there was Garth Brooks, there was Randy Travis, there was Alan Jackson, there was Brooks and Dunn, there was... Reba was just killing it. Yeah. Any number of artists were, were just having massive success records and CDs were still being sold even if you did not have a single yeah. which is where most songwriters derived their income from enough of those kinds of things CDs albums right. etc were being sold that it created kind of a middle class of, of songwriters that sure. you might not have the big singles but if you were on a multi-million selling album you could raise a family. You yeah. Know, you could go on vacation. You could send your kids to college. You yeah. Know, and yeah. and uh, so everybody was was uh, was doing really good at that point. Yeah. And yeah. 2000 was kind of it was kind of trailing off a little bit, but it was still it was still good. But personally speaking, I had uh, right around that time I I had been like off the rails hmm. with drugs, alcohol, you know, just everything that I could possibly do to sabotage my career I was doing. Huh. And I finally got to the point where I was like, okay, I'm either going to die or I'm going to do something about this. And I chose to do something about it. Uh, so that moment in time was when I had come back from a rehab and I was totally not doing anything beyond coffee. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and uh, and I had serious questions, you know, like, you know, I don't think I've been straight since 10th grade. I mean, how, how's this going to affect me? And hmm. maybe I won't be able to do what I do anymore. You know, maybe I've really bought into the whole Keith Richards, uh, you know, which is these days such an old way of thinking. Right, right. These days, our artists are thinking about wheatgrass juice and trainers. And, <laughs> right. <laughs> they're not thinking about that kind of stuff much. Right. They are, but not that much. <laughs> but what I came to see is I wrote songs like Can't Take the Honky Tonk Out of the Girl and uh, There You Are and these Montgomery, this string of Montgomery Gentry hits yeah. I had. I realized that what I was creating, I was creating in spite of. Huh. the drugs and the alcohol, not yeah. because of, you know, that I had bought into this really twisted thinking that it was who I was and part of who I was, which was not true at all, yeah. you know, and that I was still creating, I was still creating at the at the level that I've always, had always been. And it really, that was a big turning point and learning point for me. There was a lot of fear, but then yet again, I was, well, I can't do what I'm doing anymore because right. I just would be dead. Or what's worse, it wouldn't kill me. I'd just be one of these walking ghosts that, hey, that guy used to be Bob DePiro. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and unfortunately, there are those among us who have not survived that. Yeah, very true. 
Well, one of the real highlights of your catalog is Tim McGraw's Southern Voice, uh, number one single from 2009 that you co-wrote with uh, Tom Douglas. He said, I got this title called Southern Voice. And we we're sitting there and going, yeah, yeah, that, that's interesting. I can see how that could really be something. And and then I was just kind of thinking, uh, how would you write that? You know, how would you write that idea so that it could be something out of the ordinary, you know, Rather than I got mud on my throat and I got a truck and I'm driving around, you know, I got a southern voice. I mean, how could we write it in a different way? And we kind of came up with this this concept of doing a shout-out to people from the South. Yeah. You know, to verbing everybody. Hank Williams sang it. Number three wrote it. Wrote it. You yeah, know, Chuck Berry twanged it. Will yeah. Faulkner wrote it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then we were kind of off to the races, you know, yeah. uh, of finding people from the South who really had done those things. You right. Reefa Franklin sold it. Yeah. Dolly Parton <laughs> Grace it. Rosa Parks wrote it. Yeah. Scarlett O chased it. You know, we were. We were <laughs> and then the chorus I thought was was really cool. You know, smooth as the hickory wind, and to me. Hickory Wind meant uh, Graham Parsons. Graham Parsons. Yeah. Of course, he was one of the fathers of what would you call it? Country rock. Country rock. Yeah. Yeah. Bringing true country music into the rock arena. Yeah. You know, and uh, so it's kind of a sh- uh, underground shout out to 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 Graham Parsons. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It was all kind of built around this kind of. time i didn't have any music so i had written this other song before mm-hmm. called uh walking away a winner which yeah. was a hit for kathy, kathy Matea, Matea. yeah which was like hey, times on the table aches are high and i always liked that so i'm gonna see well it's a totally different melody but right. i was doing this you know hank will say number three wrote it you know, really yeah. basic music, but yeah, it's uh, almost a kind of Stones-ish kind of that open sort of sound. Yeah, a Stones-ish, yeah. Springsteen-ish, because yeah. that's that's where I live. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think if I really brought something with me to country music, it was that. Yeah, that yeah. kind of pulse, that kind of more raw, more yeah. feel, and more rocking thing yeah you know nashville has continued to to change and you've 
adapted to those changes by embracing newer co-writers and artists. Um, in 2010, you hit the top 10 with Sonny Sweeney's From a Table Away and then did it again in 2012 with Easton Corbin's Loving You is Fun. And I could also point to, to Toby Keith's top 40 hit, Drunk Americans, from 2014, which you co-wrote with Brandy Clark and Shane McAnally. And, you know, those guys sort of represent this new generation of, of writers in town. Um, how do you manage to, to stay in the game continue to do what you've been doing all this time and still find fresh angles and find ways to, to work with people who are much younger than you and, and different experiences. Um, what's, what's the spark that just sort of keeps you hungry and excited despite all the success? To me, music does not have an age. You know, you can dress it up in different outfits you can, you can dress it up with Pro Tools or Loop or new sounds or technology. Yeah. Uh, you can use new language. The language of 2017 is way different from the language of 2007 or even 2010, for that matter. You yeah. know, the language continues to change the way people speak, the words they use. Yeah. Uh, but it's still... What they said a long time ago, it all begins with a song. Yeah. Know, as, as long as you have the bones to something that you can really uh, hang good ideas on, good melodies and, yeah. and good lyrics and good stories, then writing with uh, a Shane or 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 a Brandy Clark or a John Knight or or a Luke Laird, they're just they're just me, right. but younger. You know, they they all have that fire. I can, you know, it's like there there might be should, might as well be fire in their eyes rather right. than eyeballs. You know? <laughs> right. It just continually inspires me, and as long as I stay inspired, I'll I'll keep doing this, and sooner or later nobody's going to care. But I thought they would have stopped caring a long time ago. <laughs> but you know, when they do stop caring, I'll still be writing songs. <laughs> right. I imagine you know yeah. just because it's fun. Well, Bob, thank you so much for sitting down with me today and, and let me come over here to your studio and hang out and hear some of these stories to walk through your entire career. This has been really awesome. Your dad and I have known each other for well over 30 years, and we, uh, we did some great things together, and I've always had nothing but deep respect for him and love. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Again, you can find us by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. While Songcraft is available to our listeners at no charge, we ask friends like you to consider becoming a Songcraft patron at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. There you can pledge as little as $2 per month to help Songcraft continue its mission of bringing you great interviews with great songwriters. Plus, you'll have the opportunity to access bonus content and get the chance to enjoy unique rewards and experiences as a member. We look forward to getting together again with you for the next episode of Songcraft Spotlight on Songwriters. 